you'll open your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. Uh, it's page 719 in the Bibles uh, in the seats, if that's what you're using. And we're continuing in our series in Mark. Uh, we're almost done with this Sunday and next Sunday, and then we'll turn our eyes towards the uh, attention towards the advent of Christ. Um, and I'm going to start this morning in the feeding of the 5,000, which I know you did last Sunday. And we won't be there long, uh, so I did get the memo. <clears throat> uh, but uh, the, the story of the feeding of the 4,000 doesn't really end until the 21st verse. And that's where I want to get today. And uh, so I, I need to spend a few minutes there. So while you're turning there, I want to share you something about myself and then hope that maybe you see it in yourselves uh, at the risk of me being completely uncool. Uh, I... <clears throat> I am a huge fan of the rock band U2. I think they are the greatest musicians, uh, musical group of all time. I have had a 20-year conversation with my wife convinced that Bono is saved. Uh, and she and I have had serious fights over that, uh, though she's come to my side. And I've seen them more than a few times in concert. I would qualify as one of those, as a fan, as like a genuine fan, uh, which means when I go, uh, first of all, I'm thinking about it the whole week prior, but when I go um, and they play a song, I will do this. I will look to the person who I'm with, who's never as much of a fan as me, because I'm that much of a fan, so it doesn't matter who, they are going to be the victim and no matter what song they're singing, I will look to them and go, dude, this is the best song ever. And then that song will end, and they'll start another one, to which I will say, this, this is the best song ever. And then that song will end, and the whole concert, I'll be like, I can't believe it. This is the best song ever. And I'm also a data shouter. So, you know, because it's loud. And I feel like the person I'm with, because they're not as much of a fan as me, that they need to know data about the band. <laughs> this is track number three on Unforgettable Fire. And it's the best song ever. <laughs> and I shout. So by the end of the concert, I have no voice. And I've had the best experience ever. And the, it, the encore comes. And you all know what happens in an encore. They leave to come back. I've never known a band that doesn't come back. Even if you didn't clap, they're going to come back. And if you're a fan, you need to know that they're waiting to play the best songs ever after. And if you followed a while, you know maybe they're going to do something different. So you just got to be there. But if you're not a fan, the when they leave is the time to leave. Right, Because you're thinking to yourself, if you're in the link and it's got 75,000 people that are doing what I'm doing and you're not one of me, you're thinking, if I get out now, I can be home in 35 minutes. <laughs> like you, the next song is the worst song ever if you have to hear it because you have a, you're on a mission. That's not me. I, if, if my partner or whoever I was with, they, if they said to me, John, we got to go, uncle, like uncle, I would say, go ahead. No hard feelings. Go ahead. I'll find a way home. I'm good. 
I'm totally good. I mean, uh, that's just the difference. <clears throat> and that is because I have this huge appetite for that band. And it's kind of a, an example. But I have this big, un- insatiable appetite for, uh, you know, you two is, is the example. But I think you understand that idea. Even if it's not you two, there may be things about you that you might, certain areas of life, right? And we go through different seasons. You know, as, as I get older, my appetite is a little bit, a little more calm, you know. But <clears throat> you understand being an Eagles fan or a band fan, or you may, you know, I know people who take a day off when they get the new Halo, right? And they binge. They binge on their Xbox because they've been waiting for it. You could fall head over heels for a person and turn out this way, where you have this hunger to be with them. You can't get enough of them. And the rest of your life, this is the point, the rest of your life just kind of fades away in light of that person or that thing. It's, it's as though, and you can hear this, with, addictions can be this way, by the way, so here's kind of a negative side of it, is the hunger and the apparent need to have a thing acts as a hunger suppressant for everything else. It dampens your need, your apparent need, for even the basic things of life. Black Friday's coming up. <clears throat> there are going to be people who have an appetite for something that will make them camp in the parking lot of Walmart. Bizarre. I mean, right now, as we speak, somewhere in the world is a person dressed up as a Star Wars character camping for that movie. We have hungers for things. Let's look here in Acts chapter 8. In those days, this is verse 1, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said, these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Now, uh, you did talk about this last week. Normally, people don't talk about the feeding of the 4,000 because it's not as miraculous as the feeding of the 5,000. I don't understand that, but, uh, but I'm guilty of it too. Uh, clearly, whatever God has to say is more important if he's going to feed 5,000 people than if he feeds 4,000 people. But here in this account, there are a lot of similarities between the earlier account, which is in Mark 
6 uh, of the feeding of the 5,000, but there are a few notable differences, and I, I want to just spend some time with one of them. If you note here in uh, the 8th chapter, it says, Jesus has compassion. Verse 2, I have compassion on the crowd. That is the same, by the way, as Mark 6, except that the motivation for the compassion is very, very different. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus is in a boat actually trying to get away from the crowd, and the crowd is following the boat around the shoreline trying to get to Jesus. And it says, and he had compassion on them, for they were as sheep without a shepherd. That's what it says. In other words, Jesus in Mark 6 sees them as desperate for the truth of God, hungry for the truth of God. And so he pulls ashore and teaches for the day. Here in Mark 8, the compassion comes uh, actually on a quite a different thing. It comes based upon their physical need. He says, I have compassion on them because what? Because they have been with me now for how long? Three days. Three days. They've been in a desolate place. That means out, out in the middle of nowhere, getting the teachings of Jesus. That's like going to a concert that lasts for three days. The people who have stayed have, can you imagine the appetite they've had for Jesus? I guarantee you they didn't pack for three days. There's no record of any time in in Scripture where Jesus advertises his teaching as like a three-day retreat. He teaches and they come. Which makes me think, maybe they came with a meal, like a lunch. Three days ago they did that. I mean, the scriptures imply that they have gone without food for some time. Because Jesus himself says, for they've now been with me for three days, and some of them, if on the walk home, may grow faint. The suggestion is not that they brought three days of food, but rather that they did not bring three days of food, but that their appetite for the Lord has had them hold on for three days. In other words, everything else in life has become suppressed in light of being with Jesus. This is a really good picture of what the best sort of follower of Jesus This is a really good picture of, I think, what God would want from us is to want him so much, to um, enjoy his teaching so much that we, we would outstay the practical concerns of the day. I mean, you could say, you know, he could have probably, it would have been a bigger miracle if he had done it the first day. I bet you there were 6,000 people on day one. And I'm not going to get down on them for leaving, but there's plenty of people in the world who, after a long day of the teachings of Jesus, would be like, all right, let's go. If we get out now, we'll beat the traffic. Yeah, it, it was a whole day. Or maybe they went to sleep there 
but their thought was kind of like when you go on a, on a trip with a family, your thought is we're going to get up, you know, because it's, it's, after all, it's like a worst Western you're staying in. We're going to get up early. We're going to get two biscuits out of the complimentary, you know, continental breakfast, and we're going to hit the road before sun's up. We're going to we'll be out of the city before the morning traffic. 4,000 people. Three days. Some came from a far way away, it says. Notice, by the way, here's the picture. Their affectionate hunger for the Lord gives way to his compassionate filling in the end. This is, this is the pattern, okay? I'm not going to say to you, like, if you want Jesus, he's going to give you everything you ever wanted in life. That's not the teaching. The teaching is, if you genuinely have an appetite for the Lord, he will take care of you. It's, all, it's not here. It's all over the Bible. Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and, and his righteousness, and what? And all these things will be added unto it. Is that... What God wants from us is this sort of appetite. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man finds in a field, and when he discovers it, he sells everything he has to buy that land. You see the appetite? The kingdom of heaven is like a pearl of great price that a man would come and he'd go sell everything he had to obtain that. God wants our desire. This, You know, when you... I'm not saying necessarily the emotional feeling of exhilaration when you read Zechariah. If you ever read Zechariah. I'm, I'm saying like in the psalmists that the word would feed you. That when you would, you would come to know God as a feeder of the word and want it. Jesus himself has an appetite for the things of Jesus. In John 4, this is the story of Jesus with the woman at the well. He's ministering to, right, they come to a town in Samaria. Samaria, it was going to be, it was a, a filthy town according to the Jews. So they leave Jesus at the well. The disciples go into the town to buy dinner. They go, they stop for the purpose of eating, okay? They go into town to buy a meal. Meanwhile, Jesus has this life-changing conversation for this young lady at the well. He, her life is transformed by the words he has to say, right? And she runs into the city to share what she's learned because her life has never been the same. And by extension, the town is never the same. So she goes into town to share what she has. Meanwhile, the disciples are coming out kind of like, what was that all about? And they are unpacking their bags. Lord God, we got... You know, we got cheese and crackers. They go, they're pulling stuff out, and they notice he's not hungry. And like, are you not hungry? To which he says, I have, the, I have food you don't even know about. Like, the, the kingdom of God serves as an appetite suppressant for him. How would you describe your appetite for God? I mean, are you, are you about to check the box? Like, got it, I'm out. 
those who compassionately hunger for the Lord are filled. Let me ask you this. Do the earthly concerns of life interrupt your pursuit of him very often? Never, seldom, somewhat, often, very often. Do you find going, I, I almost never have a genuine time in the word with the Lord. I mean, that puts you on the extreme of everything else seems to have a fairly loud voice in my life. And God is screaming just to be heard. It's just a great picture of a good follower. Some of the best people in the Bible are nameless. I'm so grateful they're just like us. There's nothing, no, no superhero here. It's a crowd of people who hunger for the Lord. You can be like that. Here's, let's close the curtain. That's scene one. <clears throat> let's go to the next set of verses. This is kind of scene two in the saga of, uh, of the day. Verse 11, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. The Greek is pretty hard to translate uh, with, I say to you, no sign will be given. It's, it's a half of a phrase. The implication is the whole phrase would have been, I'm going to die before I give you another sign, which is very interesting. In Matthew, this is a parallel account in Matthew. Uh, all of this is t- told in parallel in Matthew, the 16th chapter. He actually says as much. He says, no sign will be given to you but the sign of Jonah, meaning the death and resurrection of Christ. That's where it's said in Matthew. I mean, it's not, it's not like, oh, I'm tired today. I, I, really? I did 4,000 the other day. You need another one? It's not that. He sighs deeply in his spirit. Like, it cannot be more wrong. Your spirit cannot be more wrong. I will not. I am as intentional in not doing a sign to you as I was when I've done signs elsewhere. You see, the Pharisees, you can see it right out of the gate. They show up to argue. That's what it says. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him. Like right out of the gate. The, ver- the verdict's no longer out about Jesus with the Pharisees. Okay, they have already called him the son of the devil in this gospel. They've already decided who he's from and what he's about. They are against him. And when it says they're trying to test him, they are trying to inauthenticate him, is what they're trying to do. And they do this by asking for a sign. Now, if you've heard the word sign, if you've been around the Bible for a little while, you've probably heard the word sign most often in the Gospel of John. John will use sign to be closely synonymous to miracle. And Jesus did many signs like this, you might say. There's the book of John is kind of built around seven signs of, of, of Jesus. The turning of water to wine, feeding of the 5,000, walking on water, raising of Lazarus, just to name a few. That's, those were the signs in the Gospel of John. 
John uses them that way because he, he tells the signs in such a way that says something about Jesus. So the sign points to Jesus' nature, God's nature. The way it's being used here is a little differently. Mark does not use the word sign frequently, never uses it to talk about miracles. And coming out of the Pharisee's mouth, it's a little bit more traditional. What the Pharisees are doing, this would be fit in the category of, this is a traditional Jewish test for the authenticity of a prophet. That's what they're doing. It was, it was, it was, historic, it was a historic norm among the Jewish people that if a prophet were to say something, some great word of, hear ye the word of the Lord, if they were to do that, they might follow it up shortly thereafter with a sign to validate and authenticate themselves. I'll give you an example. In Isaiah, uh, there's a king. His name is King Ahaz. He's king of the Jews. And he's a rotten king. And the city of Jerusalem is surrounded uh, by the enemy, and there's massive crisis going on. And the the people in the city, to include the king and the rulers, are nervous. It says they're shaking like trees in the wind. And God sends Isaiah to Ahaz to say, Thus saith the Lord, you will not be taken over today. Don't worry. Who are they compared to God? To which afterwards Isaiah says, Ahaz, ask for a sign, any sign, small, small as you want, as big as you want. You ask for any sign so that the Lord can authenticate this word to you. To which Ahaz says, go away, little man. Like, this is not a place for religion. This is real. And at which Isaiah says, we are going to get a sign. Know this, a virgin will be with child, and she shall give birth to a son, and his name will be called Emmanuel. Now, we see a lot of fulfillment in that, right? That's a pretty important moment in the word. That's Isaiah 7. Isaiah 8 says, and a prophet is conceived and gave birth to a son. And I mean, that's so the sign in their moment took place to validate his word. And, and what God said did come true. That's a little bit what they're trying to do here. I don't think they're saying, make more bread. Like, do it again. I think it's a little bit more mature than that. It's a little bit more, a little more deeper to authenticate yourself by doing something. If you are who you say you are, prove it. This is coming from the Pharisees who won't sit under his teaching. I mean, they're stuck in a rut of unbelief. They who deny his teaching, right, who've already said no to who he is in a hundred ways, now turn to him and say, Validate yourself. Jesus' works are fused with his teachings. You can't just come to God with no spirit of faith and say, we need this. Validate yourself to me. Jesus' work is done in the midst of his teaching. When he, 
He's teaching the word almost every time or on the way to teach his word almost every time he does a sign. He's teaching the word of God. They open up the ceiling. They lower down a paralytic. What does he say? He says, your sins are forgiven. (laughs) He teaches. And then does a sign out of that, which is greater for me to say, your sins are forgiven or rise up, take up your mat and go away. So that you know the son of man has the power to forgive sins, I say. You see the teaching? God's work is joined. This is, his works are in vain unless they point to him. And he's not going to squander them on people. Think of it this way. This this is how it's been kind of traveling with me. I've been thinking about my prayer life. How often my prayers end up telling God, what he needs to do for me. I start really great, like the book says. But eventually, eventually, when I get to my, okay, I've, I've done my acts, acronym, my adoration, blah, blah, blah. This is how I think in the prayer. Check, check. Now I can get to supplication. <laughs> I need you to... Do this and this and this and this and this. Amen. I always need him to do something. Why does he always have to fix it? And I'm assuming you're not that far away. I'm assuming that this is a, a kind of a Christian pandemic of being in constant need for a new action from God. Like what he has done for me somehow is not enough. I'm not actively thinking this. I have to step away and be encountered by it in the word to realize I'm doing this. Somehow his works are not enough for me. I need him to do a new work. So you have a bad boss. You have a terrible boss, right? Why does God have to fix your boss? Or make him die and get hit by a car, whatever you've been praying, right? Whatever you've been praying, I'm asking you, why, why, is, why does Jesus have to authenticate himself by crashing into your world and doing something? Hasn't he done it? He can say to this generation, you have little faith, you're going to get no sign but the sign of Jonah, except for my death and resurrection. You must know me by that and these words. Are not his words enough? You know, if, if, those, if those Pharisees had sat for three days at the feet of Jesus with the appetite that these followers had soaking in his words, they would have heard teaching after teaching, not about all the things that Jesus is going to do for them, but of all the things Jesus intends for us to be. That with the power of his spirit, he enables us to be. When we say to the Lord, Lord, we have a terrible boss, does the boss say, well, don't worry about that, I'll fix it. I, the maker of 4,000 meals, will fix your boss. Or does he say, love thy enemy? Or does he say, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peace givers. Blessed are those who suffer for my name. You go through the entire Sermon on the Mount, which is the teachings that he classically taught on the hillside. You find nothing about the list of things Jesus is going to do All what you find is God's desire for what you ought to be in his kingdom. 
Don't worry, he says. Why would you be anxious? If your boss hits you, turn the other cheek. If he tells you to walk one mile, you walk two. We say, God, fix it. If you're God, you give me a new job or a new boss. Is that the prayer? I, I know you're not saying that because you can't do that before the Lord. Are you saying something that's like divinely compatible but essentially saying that? Determined that the answer is outside of you. Even though God, if you'd sat with him for three days with this appetite for his word, if you'd sat, you would have you heard is my strength is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in your weakness. I give you my spirit and I give you eternal victory over everything so that the worst day here is but a doorway to paradise. The world does this to us. We do it to us, the world does it to us. The world says to the church or to the people of Jesus, if you're legitimate, solve world hunger. Right? We get these tests from the world constantly. They're uninterested in Jesus. They're uninterested in the things Jesus has to say. But if we want to have a voice at the table, solve world hunger or world peace or the environment or whatever it is, whatever problem they choose, they tell us to fix. We, however, are people of the word. Right? They'll say, and while you're fixing world hunger, could you not talk about Jesus? This is not his nature. And if, you, uh, if you're here and you have a problem, like if you're in that, Lord, I just want you to fix the problem. I mean, if you could just distill, stick your prayer in a centrifuge, let it spin out all the words, and you can just see it for what it is. If all you're doing is praying that God would fix it, I'm here today to say, he has. You just don't like his answer. Let's look look at the third scene. Verse 14. This is so funny. Now they had forgotten to bring the bread. You can believe that? 4,000 meals? They get in the boat and somebody forgot to pack the cooler. That's what happens. uh, Thomas, are you serious? I put it in the trunk, honest. I put it in the trunk. I put it in the trunk. Whatever. We have no money. We have no food, right? This is what's happening. They, now, they had forgotten to bring the bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat, and it's probably floating around in the bilge. It's just, they're, they're down to one measly loaf. And in Matthew, there's a lot more light shown on this. They're wrapped around the axle, like, just great. We have no bread. It says in 15, and he cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. 16 says, And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. You see, Jesus warns them. Entirely unable to catch it. It makes me think of the movie Dumb and Dumber. 
when I don't know if it's dumb or dumber that does this, but one of them, he really goes for this woman named Mary Swanson. And he says to her, you don't even have to know the movie to appreciate this. He says to her, like, what are the chances that you and I, you know, she says, not good. And he says, like, like one in a hundred? And she goes, mm, more like one in a million. To which he says, so you're telling me there's a chance. <laughs> That's what happened here. You know, we don't have any bread. This is just great. You know, and they're just getting all burly about it in the back of the boat. You brought the bread. You're the bread man. And Jesus says, yo, think of the Pharisees. Leaven, leaven's yeast, okay, so it connects to the idea of bread. It's also the pre-scientific way of saying contagious, okay, viral. Yo, the attitude of the Pharisees and Herod, the attitude of unbelief, the spirit of unbelief is viral. Did you hear it? Yeast, watch out for the yeast. To which they go, yeast. Now our one piece of bread has yeast. Just great. To which Jesus says, and Jesus aware of this said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive and understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? And having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I took the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they say 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they say seven. And he says, do you not still understand Now, I want to rescue the disciples from a quick criticism, which is the attitude of, how can they even worry about this? He just fed 4,000 people. Like that kind of lives in us because the, the narratives are so close. The truth of the matter is, the disciples overwhelmingly lived in a world of normalcy with Jesus. Those miracles are exactly that, miraculous. They're with, this, they're with the Messiah for like two years, day after day, they're collecting money, they're buying food, they're relying on hospitality. Jesus said, foxes have holes, birds have nests in the air, but the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. They've been living fairly light. They're living a very normal life with Jesus, like you and me. It's not in their mind. To, we never see, we never see a glib, flippant attitude of the, fair, of the disciples, like, hey, Jesus, uh, we forgot the meal again. Can you, you know, you know what I'm saying? Twelve of us, a couple extra baskets and fries. You never see that. You never see that. Jesus, you, you, you see Judas took care of the money is what you see. You see them living in a world of normalcy. By the way, you get no impression in this story that Jesus ever makes a meal either. That might be why they're so wrapped around the axle is they know that Jesus just as soon them go without to learn a lesson. 
That, by the way, that thought, uh, has a lot to do with the way we pray. Sometimes I wonder if I don't go to the Lord because I know what he might have me go without. Anyway, the problem here is not that the disciples need to just turn to Jesus. When Jesus says, don't you understand? The expectation is, is not that they just turn to him and go, hey, can we have food? It's not that glib. It's not that disconnected from your life. They're living in a normal world. The issue is, they're in the boat with Jesus, and they're fretting over anything. And he's in the boat. He's with them. And yet they're caught. As though he's a million miles away. As though he's a name on a page or a person in history. I mean, he's right there. And they, in the very same boat, are reducing themselves to just an anxious, angry spirit about not having a meal. Does Jesus ever, ever seem to complain to the Lord about his circumstances? You know, the, the one place that, you know, in qualifying that question, I kind of went through and I said, well, you know, in the Garden of Gethsemane, at the very end, Jesus says to the Lord, you know, is this, are you sure? <laughs> I'll do it. Not my will, but thine. Are you sure? But that is different than being subject to it. He did not fall prey to it. Jesus is never not Lord. He may have humbled himself, but he was not beaten. Beaten is undefeated. Death was never a victor over Christ. Christ is a victor over death. He suffered and was triumphant at the same moment. It says in Colossians, he put death to shame on the cross. That's such a great line. Shamed it in victory. And we are in the same boat. You know, his life, his life is like uh, we're, we're leaving a shore and we're traveling across the sea to another shore, right? We're leaving sin and death behind us. It's, I still see it, and sometimes I like looking back, but I'm leaving it, and I'm in a boat with Jesus, and I know where he's taking me, and I can see that. And he's with me in the boat, And the things of this world get me. He has so much compassion on us, but sometimes he just has to say, do you remember what I have already done for you? Why are you being this way?
We know this. Those who have an appetite for the Lord are filled. We know this, that the sign of his death and resurrection is all we need to boast of victory. And we know that he has not left us. So what's the problem? I'm going to pray in a moment. Ask you to bow your heads. And I think it would be appropriate to offer you a second to think back in your life of the things God, when God has shown himself and how God has shown himself faithful to you. And just build, take a second and build the repertoire, the, the list, the portfolio of faithfulness, the times where you felt like you did not have and you ended up with abundance, the times when you thought you couldn't make something happen and it happened with overflowing joy, the times when he's come to you in time of need and you've ended up being a person who's overflowing with his blessing. And I don't even just mean materially. I don't even mainly mean materially. The times that he has shown himself true. Just take a second and recall them. You've got to have one. I mean, unless, unless you're coming. If you're coming, then I can offer you this promise. We do not speak of one who will leave you in need. That's what I can say to you. You can have your loneliness. You can sit on the shore. Or you can be with the one who will take you to a better land. Just take a second. Lord, you came to a world in need and you fed it yourself. I am the bread that has come down from heaven, you said. Out of the mouth of the prophets, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Lord, I ask uh, that you would strengthen our faith. We don't need you to do something, Lord. We need you to work in us through the work of your spirit, to liven our faith, breathe air and life in our faith so that our appetite for you increases all the more. So our desire for you increases all the more. And in that, Lord, we know we will be filled. Lord, we know that we have enough in Christ. We know that there is no material need, no circumstantial problem in this life that will defeat us. Not because you'll fix them, but because you have made the way. Because you've given us a robust spirit of victory. You've made us people of peace. And you've given us a greater hope. In Jesus' name, amen.